Welcome to the Corporate Legal Ops Consortium podcast, where we dive deep into conversations with technology and legal ops thought leaders from across the ecosystem. This is Clock Talk. I'm your host, Jen McCarran. I'm on the board of directors at Clock, and I lead the Netflix legal operations and technology team. On this episode, I'm teleporting you to Las Vegas to our 2023 Clock Global Institute podcast lounge. I sat down with frequent Clock Talk co-host Tommy Ferreira, head of legal ops at Cedar, and our guest, Tom Orison, director of legal ops at Microsoft. We set out to talk about tech stacks, that ops life building out worlds on Microsoft's tech stack, the percentage of built versus bought technology Tom gets to put in. And somehow we still meander into psychology, the importance of knowing your customer in order to inspire and move them forward is fundamental. Tom breaks down this whole episode to one key point. Get your process house in order and the tech will fall into place behind that. Otherwise, risk great failure. Enjoy the episode. You guys, we're here. We're in the podcast lounge. We have Tom Orison from Microsoft. The one and only Microsoft. I mean, Microsoft. One and only. Yeah. I mean, there's only one director of legal ops and corporate, external and legal affairs. That. Why aren't you guys in the acronym? Why can't the acronym become MANG? And now it's Meta and Microsoft and Apple and Amazon and Netflix and Google. That's too long. Everything acronym. Everything acronym. Everything like MANG. I work at Mang. I work in Mang. I think it sounds better than Fang. See you at the clock conference. Yeah, see you at the clock conference. <laughs> We're talking about APIs. Tommy Ferreira, co-host, also in the house. Hey, Tommy. What's shaking, Jen? Hey, Tommy. Tommy, do you want to work at, in a Mang company? I don't know. I don't know about all that. It sounds like you're doing a lot of work over yeah. there. <laughs> Fair bit. Tom's doing some stuff at Microsoft. This is not only because I'm in the process of assembling a benchmark again on friends and friends of friends, legal departments, legal ops teams. But can you remind us because of the size and scale of Microsoft, how large is your team and your legal org and how are you guys structured? I find the structure of how you and Jason have split the world very interesting. So we're a very matrix organization at Microsoft. Yeah. I always have been. I've been there for 18 years. It was there when I got there. It's yeah. even bigger and more matrix now. CELA is 2,000 strong. So yeah. corporate external legal affairs is 2,000 strong. 2,000 people in this giant CELA org. We have 2, about 2,000. Take that in, listeners. 2,000. That's a town. It's a big AMLAW 100 firm inside of Microsoft. Big. It's giant. Yep. Okay. 2,000. I'm with you. So my central legal ops team. So legal operations is a federated function inside of Microsoft. So I would say I am the federal arm of the legal operations and the central team. My team is 13 strong, 14, including me. We extend via managed service partners. And so it goes nice. into the several hundred pretty quickly with managed mm. service partners no um, to be able to do a lot of the work that we do. Yeah. We have a e-discovery team and litigation support embedded in the litigation team, I think. But that's not your role. That's not my team, but Bless it's still legal heart. operations. So, well done avoiding that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thankfully. Yes. So I have a partner, EJ Bastion, and it runs the e-discovery side okay. on litigation. So in this federal, they're like a practice they're a area. State. They're a state. Yep. Okay. They're, they're a state. state. They're a practice area. 
e-discovery end-to-end ops function. Yep. Got it. Yep. We also have uh, embedded ops function in the patent group. So patent operations. Makes sense. Nice. We have an embedded operations team in our immigration team. Huge book of work there. And we have a small but mighty team of one operations professional embedded in the trademark group. We have found over the years that keeping those operations functions that are kind of tethered to a silo and it's really not broadly applicable yeah. work across that it's best to leave those embedded in those practice groups. Well, thank you. You just I concretized a lot of what I've been landing on this last year and choosing when to go practice area ops, choosing when not to, yep. choosing when to, if your next hire rounds out a litigation ops area or e-discovery or not. I think that's a lot of what you see, which is small scale. You can do things more centralized, bigger. You've got to go decentralized. And I think I see a lot of having the expertise in the practice area. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And then you work together when solutions need that maybe collaborative implementation. Yep. So we like have a with, committee that works across that kind of manages our IT investment and kind of process across. Okay. And your team, you said 13 to 14 ish. Yep. What is the job profile in your team? Are they former IT folks? Are you doing financial outside council management or did that get chopped and sent over there? Are you doing the project management, knowledge management? What are your kind of pillars? So we're closely with a gentleman named Jason McKinnis that runs the legal business function. That's yeah. why I didn't mention that. So they're co-located with us and report to the same chief of staff. Got it. They manage the law firm engagements and a lot of the nice. pricing effort. Avoided that as well. <laughs> yeah. We manage the technology Skillful. stack supporting that. So the e-billing solution, the matter management solution is kind of on our wheelhouse, but they're Got our it. primary customers for that. You're a tech shop, straight up. I do have a team of developers that develop first-party solutions on our own stack. So primarily SharePoint, a lot of citizen developer work. We have three to four people devoted to that, kind of building custom solutions, point solutions for department on our own stack. Outside of that, I have a lot of program management work. So there's always an argument of what's a project manager versus a program manager. Yes. I really say mine are program managers. They understand the end-to-end kind of soup-to-nuts program they support and kind of drive that work. We have technical program managers on our IT side that we sure. partner very closely with. So for a big kind of contracting play, I have a PM devoted to contracting. We have a PM that's devoted to the e-billing matter management side. Got it. We also have a whole side of my team. So we split our team into kind of functional roles. And so we have the kind of tech build side. So we build stuff, we operate stuff at massive scale, and we sustain stuff. So I have the build function that Got either it. we do first party builds or we leverage third parties in which the PMs kind of in- yeah. integrate with that. On the service delivery side, we've developed a skill set around how do you partner and leverage and maximize the partnership with managed services. There's yep. a skill and an art just to making a managed service work. Yes, and we've really is. kind of advanced that. How do you structure those? What's your rhythm of reviews? How do you manage like SLAs and KPIs to get the most out of those? And so we have a center of excellence around that. So we have a huge contracting operations, four global delivery centers, 12 by five, in the ballpark of around 100 people any given moment. Okay. We also have one around our global records operations. They're in Redmond, so just one, just a 12 by five shop. But we extend a lot of what we what do. What does 12 by five mean? Five uh, days a week, five 12 days a week, 12 hours, yeah. yeah. 12, 12 hours, hours yeah. a day. So we're not around the clock. So our not contracting operations is really global facing. Yeah. So we're 24 by five there. We're Monday yeah. through Friday, we're on all the time. When I was at Cisco and we had the contract ops group, they were follow the sun. Yep. They were hard, core, never off. The reality of a global business. Yeah, Yeah. global business. (laughs) And so everything you just described is in support of the global business, the global seller group. And we have the third part, which is the sustain. So we have a team that's kind of general support for the whole SELA. You can ask them anything and if they don't know the answer, they'll get you to the right spot. 
they also do a lot of T1 tech support for our tools. Yes. Yeah, so They're more familiar with the T1 attorneys. meaning first tier. Yeah, first tier. So like coming, commissioning. Level one yeah, coming very in. Basic Got things. It. So you're already talking about the topic du jour technology stacks. And for those that are hearing this term going, what is a tech stack? Do I have one? What is a tech stack, Tom? I mean, you are living life, your best life in Microsoft's tech stack. Would you say it's like back end, front end, everything you can do with technology and build with? It's like all your foundations that you can code with. I would say this tech stack is that, but it's also extendable across that. For me, the biggest thing for a tech stack is how extensible and how easy it is to integrate the individual parts. So I used to use an analogy for like a knife block, a knife block versus a Swiss army knife. So if you're a smaller company, you're probably going to look for the Swiss army knife, a single platform that can do most of the things you want just because you're smaller and you don't have the resources or the capabilities to manage multiple. And if I was in a smaller company, that's probably the route I would take. I'm inside of Microsoft. And so I'm in the chef's kitchen. So if I want to debone a chicken, I don't want a butcher's knife. I want the deboning knife. So I look at the tech stack as that butchers are the knife block to make all the individual knives that are kind of fit for purpose to work together in a seamless whole. So when I look at a tech stack, it's that seamless whole that you have the best applications doing the things that they're best at, but they integrate across everything else you're doing. Yeah. And at Microsoft, it integrates with everything, everything. I can't even imagine the playground that is. So at a shop like I'm at and Netflix or Tommy, you're at, I don't have a tech stack of that scale no. and that depth and breadth. So we'll wind up to your earlier Swiss Army knife. We're getting a few Swiss Army knives or we're just getting a random set of knives at Target because I needed them for dinner tonight. And like, we're bringing it in. So I have six or seven solutions. Mm-hmm. Now, some of those are quite platformy and you can do low code, no code stuff on a development. And then when you start connecting them all together, maybe that's a tech stack. That starts to get tech stacky. What do you think? Starts to get tech stacky. Yeah. When you start diving into it, it's how you integrate them. So if you're tethered to like custom coded integrations, those are what I would call durable. They're more brittle. So every time there's an update, a new release, there's a good chance that the custom code is not going to work. Yes. Whereas if you leverage APIs, application program interfaces, it's a more durable way to connect things where you kind of connect them at one point And with the updates, they plan those updates so the APIs still work. So as you have SaaS providers that continually roll out updates, you don't have to worry about them talking to each other each time they roll out updates. I love that analogy. You were chock full of the analogies. We've been deboning chicken, talking about brittle. (laughs) Never heard the knife before. Like usually people in our space reuse the same analogies, but the butcher block? Yeah, we're in the butcher block. Tommy, we were, we we're in the kitchen. We're cooking something. We're cooking. I wasn't always in legal ops. I paid my way through college as a line cook. Oh, I yeah. Knew that's I right. Knew I, I remember it. this story, I your backstory. It. And it's, it's such a cool backstory. And we were just talking about backstories in the podcast before and the things people do before all of this. And that's one of the more surprising ones. As a profession goes, it's very interesting how people got here. There's very few people that have a direct route into legal operations. No, because this didn't exist. We all yep. just tripped and fell into this. Happenstance. How many yep. of us just looked up at our desk after doing this for three years and, and you were like, I do what? Legal ops? <laughs> Whatever you want to call it. And then just went back to your spreadsheet, sure. script automation. Yep. And yeah. you coded yourself to make things connect. Do you have a tech stack, Tommy? I'm starting to build one. I'm a very heavy Jira house because I'm at a startup. It's a small, small team. 
We were all in on Jira and now I'm starting to buy the tech. So I just bought the spend platform. I'm going to buy the contract management system, but I'm building a tech stack. We're going to go Swiss army because I'm at a startup. There's no way I could do anything at this Microsoft level. No way. This is out of control, but I'm going to go Swiss army knife as much as I can and then figure out where do I need all the outputs to go and how do I make the data look pretty and how do I show it to people? Jason, um, Jason, I'm thinking of Jason, Tom. When we're you kind work, of a two-headed monster. Well, you are a two-headed monster. <laughs> Jason Barnwell, also a Clockboard member, does a side of tech. Is it like test lab, design lab stuff? How do you partner with him? So one of the realities that we found is on the operations side, and the way I talk to my team about this, and I talk to my management about this as well, is if we do our job really, really well, and there's no kind of roadblocks or yeah. that come up, or like unforeseen things that kind of spin us up and make us focus our attention elsewhere, 80% of our time is on run business, getting the job done, keeping the trains running on time. So we have a massive contracting operation, massive yes. e-billing operation with high volumes strolling through. So job number one has always been that. That leaves us very little time to kind of innovate and disrupt sure. ourselves. So we're also firm believers that we want to disrupt ourselves because if we don't, somebody else is going to. And at least if we're leading the disruption, we have a better say in where we land ultimately. Yeah. So we always want to disrupt ourselves. And we found embedding that into the operations team was difficult because you have that run support that you always have to focus yeah. on. And so Jason's team is really that kind of tip of the spear innovation arm where they're really trying to change our culture internally to get them more prone to adopt technology, yeah. coming up with kind of quick win POC solutions to stand up quickly to prove value. If and when they kind of prove value and they become broadly applicable, they'll transfer back into my team. Because the last thing we want for Jason's team is then to be tethered with a bunch of run work on existing things they yeah. built, which would limit how much they could go out and innovate. God, so we've, in a sense, so separated cool. the innovation from the operations to free them up to focus more on innovation. It's really brilliant. These are brilliant lessons from scale people that we can all, you know, just take hints from on future options for us. When I was at Cisco, we had the exact problem you articulated. We were so busy running, there was no room to innovate. And then you're always just on the wheel and never able to look around corners and go, but what if, and ask the bigger questions that you have to ask or experiment with. Yep. And Jason runs the experiments. Very effectively. Yes. That's so cool. And it's a dream to be able to get back to that place. I think where I am now, it's it's really a, a mashup that because we're resource constrained, like most of us are, we're forced to innovate or push a tech stack to its outer limits in order to make a thing work. We will bend things until they break, which is fun. The, the culture encourages that, but it sounds like the culture at Microsoft really encourages innovation. And it look, really does. Yeah. It's part of our ethos. I think it always has been for the 18 years I've been there. Even in the legal group, we've always tried to push boundaries. Getting the broad swath of attorneys to adopt everything is oh, a yeah. different matter. Yeah. Is that is there a team of psychologists inside just going around doing so those that's one experiments? Of the Jason's team's focus is really, really focuses on is how do we kind of see the ground, if you will, or, yeah. or see the field so that when we come out with some of these new solutions, we'll have people that will be interested and willing to adopt. It's a difficult challenge. That's the big challenge. Our previous episode in here was all about change management, which is how do you get in people's heads? And encourage them to go this way a little bit. And even in Q this morning on our episode in here was talking about engaging an audience, which he does for a living, which is some aspect of what we do when we're selling. And he said something really profound, which was you have to be able to find where your audience is 
and as the person delivering the message, only be 25% ahead of them or so and not way in the future. And change management is about knowing where that 25% mark is, knowing where they are, and then just filling in that space with whatever they need to hear, learn, listen, do. You don't want to be too far in front of your skis and be the hand wavy. People stop listening to you. Exactly. And I think I... I've been guilty of forgetting about the change management piece. It's hard to switch context. It really is. How do you be a tech person, a tech leader, leading your three divisions of team? You're building, you're running, you're sustaining. And is it build? It's running. It's maintaining? Yep. Yeah. And then switch and go psychology. Sell on people. All of what we do, I think, is psychology, though. Because... At the end of it, it's meeting people where they're at. It's yep. understanding what the language is. How will the message best land? How do I bring them on this journey? Even though I know this is best for them, how do I bring them in? Then it's pitching. It's what is the story I'm, I'm whipping up here? Like, how am I presenting this? How am I bringing you in? So I think a lot of the journey that we have as legal ops folks is really deeply embedded in psychology of yep. managing people. It's a psych job. Yeah, it might as yeah. yeah. You, I mean, you have the best degree for it. That's why you do it so well. <laughs> so I call it know your customer. I'm a yeah. philosophy major. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I always looked at psychologists as a little bit oh squishy. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very squishy. <laughs> philosophy is very squishy, by the way. Yeah, but um, philosophy is old school squishy, and all this new age psych is not. It is, it is not knowing for your customer though. You have, yep. to, you have to understand them yeah. to be able to kind of move them to be able to influence them. One of the things I realized over the years is like, why are they so resistant to change? And then I realized like, you're not an attorney at Microsoft unless you are a very successful attorney. I think it's harder to change people who have done things that have made them successful. Yeah. yeah. Because They've we are creatures of habit and then you get yeah. validation of you do yeah. this and you get rewarded and you get promotions. And then to force people to change that is very, very difficult. Yeah. I think if you had less successful people, they'd be more ripe to change we're dealing with people who are highly successful in their profession. Less yeah. to lose. You're like, I have nothing to lose. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. You want to keep your likes. You're like, I'm going to go with the formula that kept the likes coming. <laughs> Tom, internal in your work at Microsoft, how much of your stack is licensed? How much is built? Or is it just a hybrid world where you'll, world. you'll license software from some of the vendors? I know that we share some vendors. I see you at the advisory boards. We hang. Yeah. <laughs> we get drinks in different cities. Yeah, yeah. But do you get to then wrap around the Microsoft engineering of it all to connect this stuff? We try to. When you look at like fundamental platforms, things yeah. that stitches all together, of course, we're always going to be a Microsoft shop in that sense. So yeah. Most of the things that we use now either are running on Azure or we're trying to move them to Azure because yeah. it just makes our life easier. We get a benefit from all the governance and security that's baked into that platform. Yeah. But we do have about an even mix, about 50% kind of licensed, 50% right. custom build. I would actually like to see that shift more to license. Yes. There's benefit you get from ISVs because they see the world What's more broadly. What's an ISV? Independent software vendor. Any of the people you see on the vendor floor that are sure. providing software for us to, to be able to license in. So they have a lot of benefit, not just in the technology, but in their know-how and their view of the world. So yeah. we're very insular at Microsoft. We're busy focused on our own problems to solve. It's hard to take a step back yeah. and kind of look around. A lot of times it's our vendors that come with that perspective for us. There's a lot of good work that they put in and thought they put in to kind of refining features that are difficult to do. The number one thing about first-party builds that frustrates me is that if I license a healthy SaaS provider, I can expect new features to just roll out 
every three to six months, yeah. new things just come and it doesn't cost me a dime. It's how Microsoft sells a lot of our products. How we move from package software to kind of subscription software. Sure. Do the subscription, all the goodness just flows in when it's available. If you build something, your first party, you have to go get investment to build. And then every time you want to add a new feature set, you have to go back and ask for yeah. additional investment. Yeah, you got to call go the game, out. get the, at the engineers, find and, the resources and, and the money. And there's no revenue stream. Whereas the ISVs have a revenue stream where they can do this with the revenue. Yeah, so it's like incentivized to be better and yep. rolling out features, constantly listening to the customer feedback and improving. So we try to focus our builds efforts when we're successful. We try to focus those on areas where there's nothing available that fits our need. So there is some niche things that we do where it makes sense for us to build. Or if we're proving out concepts, we're not sure if it's going to work. We'll do a first party build to prove out the concept and then we'll go shop around. Oh, that is so fun. That's great. Are you hiring? Unfortunately, at this point, no. No. Is, is anyone hiring in the industry? The markets are marketing right no, now. No. They're, they're yeah. having a mood. Nobody's hiring, but it sounds really fun. I've been through your presentations of the tech stack and I've seen just diagrams of squares and they're all stacked up over these base layer, like you yep. said, Microsoft backend or Azure systems, how cool. I mean, it is a playground in there. It is. The thing that a lot of technologists forget about is that it's not just the technology, it's the rigid process layer that is really the foundation. If you want to layer in some technology stack across disparate unorganized processes, you're in for a long, long haul. And a probably long a path to, a to long, miserable successful. road. Yeah, probably a path to failure. First thing you have to do is get your processes in your house in order, and then applying technology to that becomes quite easy. And that's so much of the work is yep. the process re-engineering we all have to do yep. to make this stuff adapt to technology. Yeah, there's no silver bullet. I don't even think there will be. Open AI and the, the generative AI and the LLMs, I think she'll promise of the silver bullet. It's kind of a double-edged sword for the, me. So I've, the LLM, the language model? Large language yeah, models. Large Sorry, language. acronyms. I thought we were talking all acronyms. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'm throwing in the definitions. <laughs> Throw them in people. the show notes. The yeah, definitions. Yeah. <laughs> so generative AI like, did two things for us. And it's like everything's a double-edged sword. Yeah. So one, it created more interest in technology across the attorneys that I serve, more than I've ever seen anything else do. Yeah, like, they are very out. interested in how this can work for them. But at the same time, they've kind of sunk back into the recliner and said, I'm just waiting for OpenAI to come and solve all my problems. Yeah. Like, no, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. You still have to put in the work to structure things and make sure that you have processes around there, yeah. that your data is structured in a certain way to get the most back out of it. And so there's interest, but kind of misplaced interest, if you will. Yeah. It's getting a lot of attention. It is. The OpenAI, generative AI, but it is pretty profound, its potential. And what we're looking at, I'm very inspired by it. I've gone from like, oh no, to oh yes. Yeah. Yep. Three podcasts later. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Where are you holding on it, Tom? Yeah, I drank the AI Kool-Aid a long time ago. Okay. So, so I've, been, right. I've been hell yes for a long time. Yeah. Tommy, where hell, are you holding? Hell yes, but I think we're going to need entire industries and roles are going to be born of the guardrails and the policies and things that we need to keep us on the rails, actually. So I'm a hell yes, but I think we're going to need a lot of safety around it. So this is, again, why like, I think ISVs are so valuable. So if you look at like, how do you ground with your own data to make sure you're getting the more deterministic outputs out of it, those guardrails, how do you ask questions in the right way to yeah. get the right answer? Yeah. That's work we could do ourselves, but it'd be really easy to write a check and have somebody else do that. And especially ISV, they're not just looking at our questions. They're yeah. looking at our questions 
and every other client of theirs questions. I mean, this yeah. is why I licensed third-party contract software that had AI in it because yep. look, there are data scientists in the company I work at and they were interested in building a model. And I said, cool, that one's built. Yep. Yeah. And it's trained to millions and millions of contracts already. Yep. So why don't you let us start some of the journey there? And then once that gets mature, we can come back together. You can read some of those AI outputs or machine learning accuracy outputs with us. And then we went back to them and we're like, help us. We don't understand the black box of what's going on <laughs> over there. And that's some of the limitation of, you know, any third-party software, it's a black box, it's their code. And it is. Whereas you at Microsoft, you can find the engineer who coded it and go, yep. break this down for me or the product manager will break it down with you. Yeah, that's kind of a nice benefit. Well, you guys, this was our time. Thank you for coming on, Tom. Talking about tech stacks galore. I'm so inspired. I just got comfortable. Now we're over with. And now we're over with. Yeah, right. <laughs> I just stopped sweating and got comfortable. Oh, and he's now, a, cut. now he's ready to go into the deep questions on who's got the better tech stack, Google or Microsoft? Because I was just visiting a friend at Google and she was going off about Google's tech stack and just how glorious it is. And they build everything in there. But it, she was telling me the perils that it sometimes makes people soft. It does. I'm a company man. I love our products. Yeah. I think we do really great things. It limits our optionality because we are tethered to our stack. Yeah. There's no Google products coming through your house anytime so soon. So the question we, if we're looking outside, the question is for third-party software, it is what is the best software that meets our need that's built on the Microsoft stack? Mm -hmm. oh, that last that, question that's can a be condition. limiting sometimes. Yeah, oh, that's a big condition. Yep. Wow. Well, I know iManages, they're built on a Microsoft stack. It's a show for another or, day. Windows backend. So, but no, it's interesting. That's a big condition. It is. That must limit things. It does. But We're then also, you get focused and you get focused. It feels on, like the gatekeeping question yeah, actually yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah, it can be, but we can also have interesting conversation with the providers if sure. they're interested in porting things and having different instances that one runs on Google or AWS and the other mm. one runs on Azure. Because we're not the only company that likes to build on Microsoft sure. Stack. We have mm -hmm. a huge customer base out there that yeah. likes to keep everything kind of on our stack to benefit from, again, the governance and security stuff that we have built in. Well, bonus question round. Tom, thanks. We'll do this again. See you out there. See you soon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, thanks for coming on. Yeah. That about wraps up this episode. Thank you, Tommy and Tom, for your tech and psychology insights. You can catch this and other episodes of Clock Talk wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Until next time.